certainly great to be here again. It's been a little while since uh, Rob and I have been back. We've been out travelling and doing different things in different places and off again for the next couple of weeks too. So God's just been doing great. Well, um, I want to speak to you about the presence of Jesus is the door of life. And if you go open with me to the Gospel of John and uh, we'll just go into it from there. And it's a bit of a long reading, so just bear with me as we go through it. I won't read the whole 19 chapters. But we'll just work our way through it. So uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, then across to verse 35 to 38, then chapter 10, verses 3, and then 9 and 10. These two chapters are actually joined together, uh, and they, they link together. We often preach them or teach them as being separate, but they're actually together. So let's just quick look at this one here in chapter 9. And Jesus, he says, And now as Jesus passed by, he saw the man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay from his saliva, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay, and said to him, Go uh, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Um, So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbours who were previously had seen him that was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he, and others said, It's like him. And he said, It's me. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes open? And he answered and said to him, A man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And so I went and washed and received my sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He says, I don't know. And then they, then they brought him, formerly who was blind to the Pharisees. And that was the Sabbath when Jesus had made clay and opened his eyes. Coming across to verse 35, it says, And Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, And found him and said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe? And he said, You have both seen him and he who talks with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe and worshipped him. And come across to chapter 10, verse 3. It says, To him the, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verses 9 and 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and in and find pastures. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Bless God. Let's just open this passage here and ask the Lord to be with us as we look into this and guide us through this tremendous passage. Father, we just come before you in the precious name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your blessings upon our lives and the things that you've done. Thank you, Lord, for this church. And pray, God, you would just uh, speak through me, Lord. All my thoughts may be centered upon you and that your presence would be open in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, the title of my message today is The Presence of Jesus is an Open Door. Now, you know, life is often referred to as a game of chance. And up on the PowerPoint, you'll see a painting by the 19th century oil painting by a fellow called Frederick Rich. And it's called The Chess Player. And today it's also known as Checkmate. The picture is uh, of the devil playing for the soul of a young man. 
Now, the artist has graphically depicted uh, the point in the game where, the young, where, where it's a young man's move and he suddenly realizes the fact that he's lost his soul. The agony and despair is in every line and feature of his face, while the devil sits on the other side of the table with a fiendish delight. The position of the game appears to be utterly hopeless for the young man. He's about to lose his soul. And you'll notice in the center of the picture, there's an angel that looks on, agreeing that the situation appears to be hopeless for the young man. The young man can do nothing to save his soul. Now, there's a true story of how Paul Murphy checkmated the devil in this painting. Paul Murphy was born in New Orleans in 1837. He's considered by many competent judges to be the strongest chess player that ever lived. The story is about the painting is this, that Paul Murphy was visiting a friend, a minister in Richmond, Virginia, America. On his arrival, he was ushered into the library there to wait, and his attention was immediately drawn to a painting over the, over the fireplace, uh, a, a copy, a line copy of the celebrated painting, The Chess Player by Frederick Rich, representing a game of chess between the young man and the devil, and the stake being the young man's soul. Now, the minister informed Paul Murphy that he'd set it up and studied this chess place with all his chess friends, and they considered the game was absolutely lost. Paul Murphy walked up to the painting, stood in front of it for several minutes, then in turn and said to the minister this, I can win the game for the young man. Because the minister was astonished. He said, is it possible? Murphy's replied, yes, it is. Let's set the table up. So he set the table up. And what's interesting is that chess is a game where you anticipate your opponent's movement, force them into making moves that they're not prepared for. Well, the board was set up and the pieces placed down. Paul Murphy sat in the young man's place. He made the next move. Forced the devil to take a counter-react move. Moved again and forced the devil to react again. and Made a move and eventually he, he checkmate the devil and saved the young man's soul. Now, the event of the blind man being healed by Jesus, and Jesus described himself in chapter 10 as the good shepherd. Here we see that the presence of Jesus is the door of life. When Jesus steps into life, he checkmates the power of Satan and gives us life. Have the next PowerPoint, please. We got it there? Next one? Okay. To be born blind and to never see... The light of day is a terrible thing. It means living in a world devoid of color and beauty. It means living in impregnable darkness, relying on your senses of touch, smell and hearing and taste and the care of honest people to guide you. Now the passage opens with the disciples looking upon this blind man's situation just like that angel in Frederick Rich's painting of the chess player and seeing the young man's position as being hopeless. See, to them, the game of life appears to be over. We see this by the question given to, to, to Jesus by the disciples. Who did sin, this man or his parents that is born blind? Now, once you notice that Jesus dismisses both possibilities, he's not concerned with why this has happened, but how these circumstances can be changed for the good of the individual. How can this man's suffering be relieved? How can this affliction 
be made a blessing and something to glorify God. See, this man's circumstances wasn't his fault. It wasn't his parents' fault. But rather, it was an opportunity for the work of God to be demonstrated. Jesus sets the man's need in the context of what God can do. He says these words. He said, I must work the works of him. That is God who sent me. And the word must that's used here expresses a divine necessity. See, Jesus is not saying that it's a good idea to relieve this man of his suffering. He's saying it is a necessity. The opportunity for this miracle to take place exists as long as Jesus is present in the world as the light of the world. See, Jesus is drawing a parallel between this man's condition and the miracle that he's about to perform and the necessity for the offer of salvation. See, the offer of salvation to those living in moral and spiritual darkness. Taking the gospel into the world is just not a good idea. It's a necessity. If we don't, people will perish for all eternity without Christ. And Jesus makes it very clear that the window of opportunity that we have to fulfill this commitment to take the gospel into the world is limited. He says, while it is still day. Can I have the next PowerPoint, please? Now, Jesus states in verse 5 that he is the light of the world, that he's the only one that can penetrate the darkness of this man's life and all individual lives. Jesus then de demonstrates his power in the most decisive, surprising and very intimate way. I want you to imagine the scene. He takes saliva from his own mouth. He picks up soil from the ground. He mixes it together to make it clay. And then he anoints the man's eyes. Jesus gently touches the man's eyes with his own saliva. And in this action, we are made deeply aware of the intimate, caring touch of Christ is at the heart of all healing, whether it's physical, spiritual, or psychological. Jesus told the man to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam. And the word Siloam here means sent, or sent one, or he that is sent. The pool gets its name as the result of a great engineering feat that took place around about 560 B.C., Hezekiah realized that Israel was going to be invaded by the Assyrians and he ordered a tunnel to be cut by hand through solid rock for several kilometers to a spring that was located outside of Jerusalem so that the city could have continuous water supply during a siege. Now Jesus' own mission is identified in the meaning of the pool. The water from the pool of Siloam came from outside of the city and was sent to the city to save people. So Christ came from outside of humanity's condition to provide salvation to the world. He came from heaven to bring life. Just as that water was sent from the spring of life, so Jesus is the living water that's sent from God to give us life. The man obeyed. The command went to the pool and washed and came back seen. Jesus declaring that he was the light of the world was now very meaningful to this man. Now, you know, the word light is mentioned 21 times in John's gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of Jesus, 
John says these words in the opening chapter. And the light shines in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. John here is dealing with the creative power of light found in Jesus to overcome the powers of darkness, Satan's hold on individuals. John is dealing actually with the cosmic struggle between light and darkness. Darkness is depicted as an aggressive force whose nature is to quench the light. Jesus is depicted as the light that shines in the darkness, putting the darkness to flight, releasing the individuals from its power. See, John uses the metaphor of light to symbolize Jesus as the word, bringing illumination and divine truth to everyone. In the Greek, the phrase, the light shines, is in a continuous action of expelling the darkness. This is actually seen in the word comprehend. If you have a modern Bible, you find it's better translated as to capture, to overwhelm, or to overpower. And Greek scholars inform us that the tense of the verb implies that there's not been a single incident where the darkness has overcome the light. Every time it's tried, it's been decisively defeated. And this theme is repeated throughout John's gospel, and it's in this fact that our salvation lies. You know, at the death of the great artist Michelangelo, he left many unfinished projects. And four of his sculptures were never meant to be completed. They are the bearded slave, the atlas slave, the awakening slave, and the young slave. Though they appear to be unfinished, they're exactly as Michelangelo intended them to be. The artist wanted to show what it meant to feel forever enslaved. Rather than having the sculptures in chains, Michelangelo has these figures stuck in the very marble out of which they're carved. You notice that their bodies seem to emerge and struggle. The muscles tense backwards and forwards, but they're never able to free themselves. You see, these statues not only graphically capture the man's personal experience, but her own personal experience of struggling to overcome sin. Without the transforming power of Jesus, the light of the world, the blind man was unable to set him free free from the crushing experiences of life. Nor can we set ourselves free. Have the next PowerPoint, please. Thank you. After the healing of the man, uh, the man is now subject to a series of interviews. The first is by his neighbors uh, who are not sure if he's a real man, if he's that man. And he assures them that, that, that it's him. He's called then to tell them how he's healed. And he identifies Jesus as the man who healed him. He's then taken to the Pharisees. And at this point, we learn that the healing took place on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees had some very strict rules about observing the Sabbath. And one was that healing could only take place or was only permitted on the Sabbath if it was a matter of life and death. So if you cut your finger off and you weren't dying, bad luck, you had to wait till Sunday. Right? Then uh, They then state that Jesus could not have been a good man because he broke the Sabbath. What's interesting in the text here is that some Pharisees question that assumption. Stating, how could a sinner perform a miracle? Now, this man is then asked his opinion of who Jesus is. Overwhelmed with the reality of the healing and the total transformation in his life, he gives Jesus the highest title 
that he can think of. He said, he's a prophet. Well, the fact that the healing took place on the Sabbath triggers a, a controversy that goes for nearly 25 verses and eventually leads to the man being put out of the temple. The question must be asked, why did Jesus heal on the Sabbath? And the answer is actually found in the first four verses of John's Gospel. John, when he writes these words, in John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John begins with these words, in the beginning, confirming a common belief that the Word, that is Jesus, shared eternity with God. Yet John goes, and yet, sorry, what John does by the divine direction of the Holy Spirit, is he identifies the Word as a separate, equal member of the Godhead that shared eternity with God. This passage is very important as we understand the Trinity. And he does it by two phrases. He says that the Word was with God. That little phrase, with God, is better translated as face-to-face with God. It means that the Word is a distinct person who existed for all eternity in the closest possible fellowship with God. Then he uses the next phrase, he says, and the Word was with God and was God. When linked with the phrase with God, it shows that Jesus is not the entire Godhead, But nevertheless, the divinity that belongs to the rest of the Godhead also belongs to him. Now, John then asserts in verse 3 the intimate involvement of the word that is Jesus in creation. He says, all things were made through him and without him nothing that was made was made. What he shows here is that the word that is Jesus is the underlining principle That is the one who brought systematic order and proper arrangement of people, place, and things under which the universe continues to exist. John continues on the positive side. Through him, all things were made. On the negative side, without him, nothing was made. There's a story told of a Navy pilot during the Vietnam War, and he was describing the complexity of his helicopter to his parents. And he told them that this small hexagon nut which he held in his hand held the main rotor blade to the, hel- to the helicopter. Guess what this nut is called, he said to his mother. She just shrugged her shoulders. And he answered his question. He said, it's called the Jesus nut. You lot thought you were the only Jesus nuts, didn't you? And I, the reason why it's called the Jesus now, because this little rotor, this little hexagon now, held the rotor to the helicopter, and if it ever came loose, you would come crashing to the ground. It's no wonder the Vietnam pilots gave it the name Jesus now. They basically said if it came loose, there was only one thing to do pray to Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit reveals through John that out of the amazing face to face relationship, that the word Jesus had with God, all of creation flowed and continues to flow. Now John goes on in chapter 1 verse 4 and he says, In him was life. This is an important part of the phrase. 
in him was life. God, through his Son, the Word, did bring all his creative works to an end on the sixth day. The Scriptures tell us that God rested on the seventh day. However, life must continue after creation. When God entered into his seventh day, God rested from creation, but he pursued a new passion of preserving, protecting, reproducing, and the redeeming activities of his creation. See, without the activity of God, the whole of creation would cease. Unless God is continued active, nothing can survive. The great philosopher Filio said this, even on the Sabbath, the mercy and the grace of God continue to act. See, God may have rested from his works on the Sabbath, but he never rested from his acts of compassion and mercy and his activity to sustain creation. You know, the Jews believe, as we do, that, that since every day of creation started with a morning and ended with an evening, Except the seventh day. The seventh day starts with the morning but has no evening. And therefore, the rest of God goes on and on. This is what the book of Hebrews is about. Jesus, by his presence and his actions of healing the man, is clearly showing us that the compassion and merciful acts of God to sustain creation never ceases. See, understanding this truth sets us free and opens the door to experience the presence of Christ in our lives, in our lives, and to give us life, and to understand that healing is always available. Come to the next PowerPoint, please. Now remember the painting of the chess player. The young man's position looked absolutely hopeless. Even the angel looking on said the situation was hopeless. But that wasn't the truth. Satan hadn't won. In John chapter 8, verse 32, contains a well-known phrase that everybody in the world seems to know. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The phrase appears in many plots and movies and books, and is the motto of some very prestigious universities. Why is this? Well, because truth is liberating. In the context of John's gospel, the word free here is the word for setting a slave free, and it's probably better translated as the word emancipation. Emancipation means being set free from legal, social, political restrictions or the control or power of another. Often when we speak of this statement of Jesus, we see ourselves being set free from the bondage of sin, which is very true. However, if we look at the verse in the context of its use, which is accusations against Jesus breaking the Sabbath, by healing the blind man and other miracles he did, we see that the statement refers to us being set free from the endless regulations of good works imposed upon people to experience the grace of God. And we know the verse that Paul says, For with grace are we saved through faith, not of ourselves, but it's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. On January 1, 1863, Abraham Lincoln referred, uh, received the final draft of the Emancipation Proclamation of Slaves. Twice the president picked up the pen to sign it, and twice he put it down. 
turning to then the Secretary of State, he said, I've been shaking hands since 9am this morning. My, my right hand is almost paralysed. And if my name goes down in history, it will be for this act. And my whole soul is in it. If my hand trembles when I sign it, those that examine it later will say, he hesitated. The president then steeled himself, picked up the pen firmly, and slowly wrote his name, Abraham Lincoln, there. That historical act endeared Lincoln to the world as the great emancipator of slavery. You know, Christ's hand did not shake. There was no hesitation in his resolve to bring freedom from sin from humanity. Christ signed our liberty with his own blood, dying on the cross to release us from the awful slavery of sin and the endless requirements of fulfilling the law and good works to receive the wonderful gift of being saved by grace. As the truth of whom Jesus is set the blind man free to experience the presence of Christ, it's the same with us. With this truth, Satan is checkmated in our lives and all the lives of people. God's compassion and mercy for acts through Jesus Christ to give us abundant life never, ever ceases. Come to the next PowerPoint, please. Now, Jesus knew the man had been put out of the temple and he goes and finds him. Uh, this part of the story is a great introduction to chapter 10 where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Here the good shepherd finds the lost sheep that's been rejected from the temple and brings him into the true kingdom. The church father, Christopher, said, the Jews cast him out of the temple, the Lord of the temple found him. Then Jesus asked the healed man if he believes in the Son of God. And the man replies, who is he, Lord, that I might believe? Well, the word Lord here shows respect and openness to faith. And in chapter 9, verse 37 Jesus makes himself fully known to the man and immediately he falls down at the feet of Jesus and worships him, stating that he believes. But I want you to notice something very important in chapter 9. The blind man's insight, faith and understanding and revelation of Jesus has been growing all the way through the chapter. In chapter 9, verse 11, he calls Jesus a man called Jesus. In chapter 9, verse 17, he gives him the highest title he can think of. He's a prophet. And finally, in verse 37, he recognizes him as the Son of God. And the story shows how faith grows until we come to a realization of who Jesus is. The story actually suits John's progressive argument that Jesus is the Son of God and believing on him, you'll have eternal life. Let's look at what Jesus says to the man. John chapter 10 verse 3 says, The sheep hear my voice. This is a very picturesque. In the Greek it actually describes an animal pricking up its ears. In this case a sheep at the sound or anticipation of a sound of a, of a familiar voice or name or sound and bouncing towards it. Our little dog's like that when Robin comes home. It's just all excited to me, just his big deal. But anyway, uh, this is the term. The excitement is there. Now, the scientists... At Stafford University, once conducted a study to measure voice recognition. And during the study, they took 24 children and they each listened to three audio clips. Now, the clips were less than one second long and contained unintelligible words. 
One clip was a child's mother, while the other two featured voices of women they didn't know. Now, despite the brevity of the voice samples, the children identified their mother's voice 97% of the time. The other 3% were on their phones. <laughs> like these children who knew the sound of their mother's voice, the sheep in John 10 were able to recognize the sound of the, uh, of the, sheep, of, of, of the shepherd's voice. Jesus then speaks about the bond of trust between the sheep and the shepherd. He said he brings them out of the sheepfold and they follow him. It's a picture of the shepherd ensuring that the best interest of the sheep, sheep are served. In this case, it's Jesus ensuring that our best interests in life are served by his continued presence. In John chapter 9, verse 35 to 36, the man hears the voice of Jesus. He recognizes who Jesus is. Up to this point, he'd never seen Jesus. He'd only heard his voice. There's a sense of anticipation in the words. The man's voice is like the sheep's ears that are pricked up. In verse 38, we see the bond of trust. Not only does he worship the man, worship Jesus, but he believes in Jesus as the Son of God. Coming back to chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus identifies himself as the door of blessing and the power that delivers people from danger. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters into me, they will be saved. The words are emphatic. There's no other way of salvation. Jesus says that those that pass freely through the door enjoy a secure, abundant life. This is brought out by the phrase in verse 9. It says, they will go out. Sorry, they, they, they will go in and out. Now, which does not refer to going in and out of a sheepfold, as we would read it, but it's actually a Jewish expression for the course of life. And in the context, it means to enjoy life, going in and out of this area. So the life that the believer enjoys is the blessing of God. Now, the presence of Jesus brings life. Jesus says in 10.10 that he's come to give life. Now, uh, the word life is continually found on the, life, on, on the lips of Jesus. It's actually recorded more than 50 times in John's Gospel. See, for the Jews, life always included the positive aspect of social well-being and fellowship with God. So the life that Jesus brings is opposite to destruction, condemnation, and death. It's eternal and can only be received by believing in Jesus Christ as Savior. In 1918, there's a photograph up on the PowerPoint there, uh, towards the end of World, World War I, a photographer by the name of Eric Armstrong was preparing a portfolio of photographs for the up-and-coming Minnesota Photographic Association convention. And he took a picture of the gentleman there, it's called Charles Wilden, a peddler who sold foot scrapers, and it's called Grace and Gratitude is the name of the picture. Now, Enstrong stated there was something about this old man's face that immediately impressed me. He said, I saw that he had a kind face. There wasn't any harsh lines on his face. In this much-beloved photograph, a bearded old man sits at a table. His head is bowed. His hands are clasped in prayer. On the surface before him, there's a book. It's a Bible. Spectacles, a bowl of oatmeal, a loaf of bread, and a knife. Nothing more Nothing less. 
And so I said, I wanted to take a picture that would show people, even though they had to go without many things because of the war, they still had much to be thankful for. As soon as the negative was developed, Enstrong says he was sure he had something special. The picture seemed to say something. This man doesn't have much of earthly goods, but he has more than most people because he has a thankful heart. Enstrong's camera had captured something special, which is widely acknowledged so, by, by, by so many. This picture has been printed in the millions and it hangs in homes and churches. And would you believe it's even found in restaurants? We often have the words underneath it, I've come to give life and life more abundant. Why do people love this picture? Here is a life that's full. One lived in gratitude. One you and I can experience regardless of our circumstances. Jesus announces the good news. He says that I've come to give life to the full. The fullness that Jesus speaks of here isn't measured in worldly categories of riches and estates, but rather by the heart, mind and soul and strength brimming over with a gratitude for God, for our salvation and enjoying abundant life. Jesus said himself in John 10.10 that he'd come to give abundant life that's filled with his presence. Instead of a tedious life that just goes from one event to another, traveling aimlessly through time with no sense of security, rather Jesus comes to give life here that enables us to pass through the trials of life, filled with peace and joy and power and love, with a confidence that we will pass from this life into his, his eternal presence. May I have the final PowerPoint, please? You know, different countries have uh, different customs at weddings. Now, Russian wedding customs are filled with beauty and with significant customs. And one such custom takes place during the reception. The toastmaster proposes a toast in honour of the couple. Everyone raises their glasses and sips from the glass. And then they shout at these words, Gokio, Gokio, which is my limit of Russian, but it means bitter, bitter. When the guests shout these words, the newly couple must rise and kiss each other to make the drink sweet. The union and joy takes away the bitterness of loneliness of life and opens the door to a new life and life is now full. As seen in the blind man that was healed, the presence of Jesus opens the door to life and there's no more gokio, gokio, bitter, bitter. Life's now become full. See, the game of life is not lost. Christ has entered our life. Satan is checkmated. The darkness is overcome by the power of Christ. Jesus has come as the light of the world, our great emancipator from the slavery of sin. By coming to him, we now enjoy abundant life. Just as that man, though he's unable to see, was by the words of Jesus brought out of sickness and sin through a door of opportunity and power to live an abundant life. So too, through Jesus' word and believing upon him, we're able to enjoy an abundant life. In this fact lies our salvation. The presence of Jesus is an open door. And it's in this, and this is the reason for our life that we have every day, that we give thanks to him that we are in his presence. 
but it's also the reason why we take the gospel into all the world and, and preach the gospel for people to be saved. Let's just close in a word of prayer. Bless the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just come in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your presence upon us and for your word. We pray, God, that you be with, with us today as we fellowship one with another, but also, Father, that we may be able to lead others to find Jesus Christ as Savior. We thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless each one of you. Go ahead.